SPC. We are the Dingisos. My name is Loiso. This is Ibiwe. That is Lukona. And this is Nox. Yes, uh, so Nox and I were celebrating. In fact, today, the 27th of August, we are celebrating our 15th year anniversary. Uh, it's also her birthday. Uh, so we just finished we just finished eating cake. Um, so we, we're really thankful to God that uh, she he, he, he has kept uh, Nox and uh, and uh, we're also thankful that uh, uh, God has sustained us in our marriage. Um, and yeah, so yeah, we we really miss everyone at SPC and we hope um, that uh, we'll go to level one uh, soon and uh, so that we can uh, see each other again and shake hands and give hugs and all of that. Yeah, thank you so much. Be blessed. Thank you. Bye. 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 From the Emmett family, we love and miss you all. And a special shout out to our um, over 60s, our third act ministry. We miss you and can't wait to meet with you all again. Bye. 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 Good morning, SBC from the Rasmussen family. I just want to encourage you this morning in my reading. I was taken to 2 Timothy 1.7, where God reminds us that he hasn't given us a spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So I want to encourage you in these trying times just to remember who the Lord is and remember His authority that He has still today on this earth. Missing having a cup of coffee under the tent. Hope you all have a blessed Sunday, SBC. Love you lots. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey, SBC, and welcome to the service. Can you believe that today is our 26th Sunday online? That means that we have spent exactly half a year gathering on social media. Now, while that has had some perks, like perhaps watching in your pajamas or eating breakfast while doing church, it definitely isn't the same as being together in person. And so I'm excited to tell you that as of Sunday, the 4th of October, we are going to be having Sunday gatherings at SBC. Things are gonna be a little bit different. Our services are gonna be run at 8, 10, 30, and six o'clock. And they will be limited to 50 people to make sure that we are still COVID compliant and in line with all the regulations. What that means is that not everyone can attend church every week. And so we are asking you to sign up online at the link that is on screen now and trust us to allocate you to a week. You will register for your preferred time slot and then we will assign you to a date that'll give you the chance to come and worship in person at Sterling. As for the kiddos, I'm pleased to say that we will be running a children's program. We will provide children's ministry to children from age three to grade four. Your older children and your young babies will need to stay with you in the main service, but they are more than welcome. And we would love to have your whole family worshiping at church with us. And so if you would like to be a part of those um, in-person gatherings at the church, you can use the link on screen to sign up. But perhaps if you still feel that you are at high risk because of comorbidities or of your age, then you are more than welcome to keep fellowshipping online. We will continue to produce our online package so that everyone can still be part of SBC in this season. That's all that I need to bring to your attention today. I'm going to hand over to Matt and the rest of the team as we dive into God's Word. You're invited to stay online and join us for worship when the sermon ends. We're going to sing to the Lord. And um, you can also worship the Lord through giving today by EFT or by commenting in our comment feed. We would love to hear any answered prayers or testimonies of God's goodness to you that could be an encouragement to the body. Have a great service, guys, and I look forward to seeing some of you very soon. Good morning, church. Welcome from the woods. 
We really are looking forward to being in fellowship with you today. It's a wonderful new season. Spring is in the air. We've just had small groups meeting at uh, in their homes and we've had small groups meeting at church and we've even had youth meeting at church this week and it's been so wonderful to see this new life springing forth um, in this season. Uh, the verse that's on our hearts for you this morning is from uh, Philippians chapter 1 verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And that word partnership church actually means fellowship. And God has put us together as a fellowship at SBC so that we will advance his kingdom and advance the gospel. And we are so looking forward to being part of that journey with you. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we just yeah, we thank you for the fellowship that we get to be a part of. Thank mm. you for each and every person listening to the sermon today. And um, that's a part of our family, Lord. We just pray that we can all come together now and to just be united in um, hearing your word and going out and doing your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Take it away, Matt. Hello everyone, welcome to another Sunday online service. Can you believe it is our 26th online service today, which makes it six months officially quite a milestone. So a warm welcome to everyone who's joining us today. Uh, you're finding us wrapping up this stint of our series called Songs of Salvation, where we've looked at a number of different psalms together. And uh, we're wrapping up today with Psalm 63. And so I'm going to ask Matt and Kat de Clark to read Psalm 63 for us today. So over to Matt and Kat. Hi Church, good to be with you again. Kat's going to be doing the reading from Psalm 63. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Thanks, Matt and Kath. So, I've entitled today's uh, sermon, Never Let a Good Crisis Go to Waste, Part 3. Yes, Part 3. And I've stolen the title from a quote attributed to the late great Winston Churchill. Um, who led Britain through the Second World War. And uh, I never intended uh, this to be a three-part uh, mini-series within Songs of Salvation. God has just seemingly woven this together. And so uh, I want to remind us quickly, the, the last uh, two times you and I have been together in the book of Psalms, we looked at the first part of never letting a good crisis go to waste. 
we saw David in a physical crisis. And he was on the run from his son Absalom, who was trying to kill him and become king in his place. And that was Psalm 5. The second part of um, this never let a good crisis go to waste theme was a spiritual crisis of an intellectual nature, which a guy called Asaph had to wrestle, wrestle through in Psalm 73. But today we are coming to the most kind of or the most difficult kind of crisis of all. And it is a spiritual crisis of an experiential nature. And we're coming back to the life of David. And again, we see him on the run. It's the same uh, context as Psalm 5, our part one. Um, but he's on the run from his son Absalom. But we're going to see today that this trial is even more difficult that he's in than Psalm 5 for some very important reasons. And David is um, on the run from his son. And he currently finds himself, as the scriptures tell us in the heading for this psalm, in the wilderness of Judah. He's in a barren, barren land where there is no water, you know, from verse 1. And so he's not only in a very tough space internally, he's also in a very tough space externally. He's in great trouble, great distress. And I want to remind you again, all of you watching, that um, we must never forget how fruitful these times of trials are in our lives. They are times of immense hardship. But we see in David's life some of his best psalms coming out of his deepest trouble. And if we will let these crises have their work in us and let them test and grow our faith, man, they can be our best spiritually defining moments. And uh, again, I want to remind you that we are learning how to process distress, essentially. Um, that is what trials call, that cause, that's what suffering causes. It causes varying degrees of distress. And today we're going to see the most severe form of distress of all. But um, David is teaching us how to cope with distress. And remember, the great Tim Keller, um, he, he tells us that there are three ways of dealing with emotions in this life. The first is you can suppress them, not helpful. You can vent them, not helpful either. Or you can do it the biblical way, which David teaches us today, which is to pray through our emotions. And what's different about today is that in part one and two, in other words, in Psalm 5 and Psalm 73, David and Asaph, feel close to God. They can hear his voice. And remember, we've been saying in our times together that sanity starts by processing in the presence of God. You've got to get into the presence of God in order to get a clear picture of sanity again. You can't assess your horizontal situation and hope to try and find clarity or sanity in this space. No, you get it vertically. But the problem for David today and what makes this trial a double whammy and the most difficult trial a believer can face, is that he's not only in physical trouble, he's still on the run from Absalom, but he can't seem to sense the presence of God anywhere or hear God's voice. And you pick it up in verse 1 here, David's distress is because he's being utterly frustrated in his attempts to experience and sense the presence of God and to hear God's voice. God is feeling absent and God is being silent. And it comes to you, he says, oh God, you are my God in verse one. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry, merry land where there is no water. This guy is desperate to draw close to God and his attempts are being thwarted. And if you look carefully at the psalm, Every time David talks about being satisfied in his soul with God, it's past tense or future tense. I mean, he says here, he says, um, when I, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. It's past tense. He's, 
He's looking back to his encounters with God or he looks to the future. He says, my soul will be satisfied as with rich food. He is reminiscing about the past and hopeful about the future, but he's frustrated in the present. And I want to say to you today, this is the highest form of trial a believer can go through. It was for Jesus. I mean, Jesus' most difficult trial came at the end of his life when the father turned his face on his son on the cross. And Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was utterly agonizing. And this sense of being cut off from God. And we don't ever go to that extent, praise God. But I want to say to you that we can have a taste of what Jesus felt on the cross. And for the believer that understands in his hour of need, this desperation for God, I'm telling you, it can be agonizing. Now, do you know the loneliness of this kind of trial? Can I say to you today, if you have not experienced this kind of crisis, it's going to come if you're serious about seeking God. And perhaps maybe there is someone watching today who's in this sort of spiritual crisis of an experiential nature. You, you are in such trouble, and despite your attempts, you cannot hear God or feel Him anywhere. Friends, this sermon is for you. And this trial that David's in is called the dark night of the soul. And the reason why it is so difficult and distressing is it's because of a time of extreme harassment on one's soul when one's in a trial like this. You know, you are surrounded by voices. And if you take David's example today, there are voices attacking David saying, you're a failure as a father. Look at what your own son wants to do to you. He wants to kill you. You're a useless king. You're an adulterer and a sinner. You're a good for nothing, abandoned by God. David, you're having these voices whirl through his head. And the one voice he needs to hear in this moment of the father saying, my boy, I'm with you. I've got you. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to hold you. The one sense of presence that he needs. He's surrounded by his enemies physically and spiritually. Oh, and the one presence he needs is God and he can't get it. And it is utterly agonizing for David. And I want to say to you today, friends, this can have severe physical consequences in the life of the believer. When David says, my flesh faints for you in verse 1 in the song, he's not being sentimental. He's not going, oh, this is what I feel for you. He is in agony. He is in desperation. He is having a physical consequence of feeling the absence of God in extreme trial. And friends, he can't sleep at night. We can see that he's up in his bed at night in the watches of the night. He's, he's meditating on God. He can't sleep. And for, for, for Jesus, in his sake, he sweat blood. It, it was one of the deepest, darkest trials of Christ's life. And it had a physical consequence. Some people, historically speaking, couldn't eat. Saints who've been through these kinds of can't eat. And they lose weight. And there, there is a physical consequence, even like Job in the Bible, for this sort of trial. This is not a, a playing of games here, guys. This is the hardest kind of trial that a believer can go through. And if you want to know God and find him and follow him in your life, this is the kind of trial that will come. It can last for a day or two or three. It can last for months. But regardless of the time span, it's agonizing. And so today, how can we learn from Psalm 63 and how does it shepherd us through this deep crisis of the soul? Well, the first thing I want to share with us today that we must see in this psalm is that we must refuse to believe the lie that God no longer loves us. We must refuse to believe the lie that God no longer loves us. You see, David is in great distress. He's in a great struggle. Yeah, he's in a great battle. 
And he makes this emphatic statement. It's a bit of a weird way to open up a prayer. He says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. Why would David say that? You are my God. Surely God knows that he's David's God. And I mean, why must he make this statement so emphatically? Well, he has to do it because David is being tempted to feel rejected and abandoned by God. And the enemy that is working in this vulnerable place of David's life, this moment in his life, is trying to get David to believe that lie. And you see, I want to remind you today, are you in some trouble or some distress like David today? What the enemy is going to put his most pressure on, or the most pressure on, is whether or not we believe that God is going to love us. He wants us, God really loves us. He wants us to doubt that God loves us no matter what. And you see, in this trial that David's in, the enemy has a very persuasive argument. You see, David can't hear God's voice and he can't feel God's presence. And so when Satan comes to David and he says, you see, God has abandoned you. He's rejected you. He won't even speak to you. Experientially, it sounds so persuasive for David because David can't feel God anyway. Have you ever had that? I have. And Satan seems to be correct in his argument. And, and you're going, God, where are you? God, what are you saying in this situation? I can't feel you. I can't see you. And David, and Satan's turning that into an argument and saying, yeah, you see, God's abandoned you. He doesn't love you anymore. If he did, he would be speaking to you and he would be near you right now. And you see what the enemy wants to do is he wants to get you to fall into one of two kinds of traps. The first is he wants you in a trial like this where you can't sense God experientially. He wants you to point the finger at yourself and he wants you to say, well, it's my fault. I've sinned. I've displeased God. I've upset him. It's all my fault. God's rejected me. He's punishing me. Now we know that in this context of Psalm 60, David hasn't sinned. He hasn't sinned. Ah, but there's a backdoor to Satan's argument is that, ah, Absalom's rebellion against you is because of your sin with Bathsheba. He wants to bring up past sin, past failure. And because of this past sin, David's being tempted to think, oh, well, God's abandoning me as king. God's abandoning me. He won't even talk to me. My, my time's up. God's left me. I'm a done for. Do you see, even there, David won't believe it. Friends, this truth that God loves us as his children, no matter what, it is scandalous and it is profound and you have to believe it no matter what. You see, for David, he goes, well, let's just think about this moment, Satan. Let's think. If God is dealing with me because of my sin and sometimes severely, like we know that happened in David's life, it's because he loves me. And David could say, I could have done the worst thing possible and here I am. I've, I've been stupid. I've been a spiritual silly billy. I've made a dumb mistake. I've been even aggressively rebellious for God and I'm regretting it. And God's having to deal with me severely. If he's dealing with me, that means he loves me. If he's left me to myself, that means he doesn't love me. I'm not his. No, he's my God. I belong to him. Come what may, it is the goodness and love of God that's bringing it into my life. And nothing that you say, Satan, nothing that you say, flesh, and nothing that you say, world is ever going to take that away from me. Do you believe that today, my friend? If you will, it will be the bedrock of you being able to trust God when you can't sense him or feel him anyway. You'll know he hasn't changed. He's my God. I'm his. And I'm going to stand upon this covenant that is going to last forever. And if David could do it, my friend, so can you. Because you have a higher assurance. He was in this old covenant of, of the blood of goat symbols. You have the blood of Christ that is eternally satisfying the Father. And because of that, if you are his child by faith in Jesus Christ, nothing can shake you from the love of God. Romans 8 says, what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. 
This is radical. Do you believe, my friend, that whatever is coming into your life is being steered by God's love for you? You see, because the second kind of trial or trap that Satan wants you to fall into is to point your finger at God. To say, if God, if you really love me, you wouldn't let this happen. If God, if you really love me, you would never have let this ugly person do this thing to me. You're not a keeper of your promises. You know, Satan wants you to get bitter towards God like Asaph did last week. I mean, two weeks ago in Psalm 73. But you see, David won't buy that either. Because even if trouble is coming because of no sin, it's God's goodness because he wants me to grow. He wants me to prosper. He wants me to inherit eternal reward. No matter if it is trial because of sin or trial because of testing and growth of faith, it doesn't matter. It's God's love for me. It's his goodness to me. I'm not going to let it go. And he's never going to let me go. I want to say to you today, what will start bringing you rejoicing in your trial when you, you feel absent and insecure because you can't feel the presence of God is to believe he loves me no matter what. And no matter what's coming into my life, it's being steered by the goodness and glory of God. Wow. Can I say to you today, this is the glory of the faith that we have in the God of the Bible and his son, Jesus Christ. Is he loves us. He loves us. There's the start of certainty right there in confidence. The second thing we see is David understands the nature of his soul. You see, <laughs> His vulnerability teaches us something profound. May I lovingly say, too few of us understand our souls. You see, every human being is born with a thirsty soul. When David says, my soul thirsts for you, there is this desperation for God. He is describing the state of every human soul. We are born with a thirsty soul, a needy soul. And this soul is driven for satisfaction. And that's the essence of the human being, the human race, is that we are driven by these appetites and desires, these pursuits of achievement, this pursuit of praise from people, the pursuit of pleasure, this pursuit to try and find meaning. Every life's pursuit is being driven by a thirsty soul. And what we see here is David understands that these symptoms are not what we need to be focusing on right now. You see, we focus on these drives and the externals of what actually is a root problem in our souls. And you know, that, that's why, even wondering why you lose interest in things so quickly, it's because your soul goes, well, that's not, that's not working right now, find something else. Or maybe when you have stuck to your goal and you've achieved it, your soul's going, so what's next? It's, it's finished, it's done. See, David understands something here. He realizes there's only one thing that satisfies the human soul. And that is the presence of God himself. And this makes absolute spiritual sense. The soul is eternal. Your soul is eternal. And there's only one being that is eternal in the universe that can satisfy it. It is the eternal God. And friends, can I say to you today, being in God's presence, why it is so massive for you and me. Being in God's presence, being in fellowship with him, the kind of thing David's desperate for here and he's frustrated in. It's like eating and drinking. It produces a fullness in your soul. Can I say to you today, your soul is designed to live off God. Paul said it to the Ephesians, said, be filled. That filled is continuous, present, active. Be filled continuously with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. Your soul needs fellowship with God like nothing else in the universe. 
And it goes on to say, Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. John chapter 6, verse 53 and 56. You see, the Christian life, my friend, is not merely right belief. It's not really right behavior. Our faith leads us into a satisfying experience of the presence of God. That is why Hebrews says, if we're drawn near to the throne of grace with confidence, you can come into the presence of the Almighty God through the power of the Spirit. And the mark of the believer versus the unbeliever is that the believer has access to the presence of God. The unbeliever doesn't. And how little we make use of this great privilege. Moses said it. We won't go to that promised land if you don't leave your presence with us. That's what makes us distinct. And you see David here. <laughs> he could have asked for anything. He could have asked for vengeance on his enemies. He could have sought back his kingship. Give me back my kingship. But he knows this is not what his soul needs. His soul needs communion with God. He says, earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. He is desperate for the one thing he knows that satisfies. It's this communion with God and his soul is desperate for it. You see, David couldn't live without the presence of God in his life, without hearing his voice regularly. And I want to ask you, can you? Can you? What is the state of your soul today, my friend? Do you care for it? Do you recognize that it lives off God? Jesus lived this way. You know, Jesus arranged his ministry, not by rosters and not by saying, okay, that's my leave day, my day off. He would match his ministry to the state of his soul. And he was willing to forsake thousands of crowds who were coming after him. Imagine the temptation to feed into that, to get your sense of worth from all of the success of ministry. Jesus won't go there. He goes up to the mountain. He spends all night in prayer or gets up early. He's got to be close to God. And he quotes this back to Satan who's tempting him in the wilderness. He says, don't you know, Satan, man lives not by bread alone, but by every word that comes. What? From a dead book? From my dead prayer time? From my religiosity? No, from the very mouth of God. There is communion. I'm close enough to God to hear his voice and he's close enough to me to speak. See, both David and Jesus knew this verse from Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3. And can I just point out to today, please, my friends, please, please, please. We have to see in Psalm 63 that this is an abnormal experience for David. The sense of not feeling his presence or feeling, hearing his voice. And I'm not talking about necessarily supernatural experiences. If that's what happens and leads you into the presence of God, don't despise them, embrace them. But I'm talking about the sense of God daily through some of the most mundane, ordinary matters of life, through your time of regular daily fellowship with God. You're sensing him. You're open to this communion with him. He's reaching your heart. He's speaking. Do you know this as a step, staple diet in your life of being near and close and open to the voice of God and hearing him? Friends, this was an abnormal experience for David. Isn't it an abnormal experience for you? How long can you go without the sense of God's presence in your life? You see, David's kingship, his reputation, his success, it didn't matter in comparison to being close to God. If he couldn't be close to God, he didn't want any of that stuff. Do you? And so David... 
after this expression of extreme angst and desperation before God, has to make a decision. Now, he can't hear God. He can't feel God. How is he going to help his soul through this dark night? And friends, today I want to say to you, there are practical things that we have to do in a trial like this that help our souls cope through the distress of being feeling cut off and unable to hear the voice of God. And he says it, it comes to in the word so. So, verse 3, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. So what's he going to do about it, in other words? This is what he's going to do. And I want to remind you, this kind of trial is the highest and most difficult trial because it is a trial that you're walking completely by faith, not by sight. You have no senses being, being able to hear God or feel God anyway. Unlike Psalm 5 and Psalm 73, today's Psalms, David's got nothing except his knowledge of God and this distressed soul. And so, although this is a terrifying experience for any believer like David, I want to say to you today, God will not test you beyond what your measure of faith is. James put it beautifully in his opening chapter of his book. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds for the testing of your faith, your existing faith. God is allowing, he's matching the trial to your measure of faith and he will never match the trial to uh, uh, make it exceed your level of faith. You can be assured today, my friend, that whatever trial you are in, I'll, I'll be honest, I wanted to slap Artie Kendall the first time I heard him say, it is a compliment from God. He will not tempt you beyond what you can handle. He will provide a way out. And so I want to say to you today, believer, have you ever been in a severe trial that has tested your faith? If you haven't, you haven't grown very much. It would be a thing that disturbs me. No, no, you must look at this as going, wow, I'm in for graduation here. I've grown. God's letting this coming time. I've grown. And it, the bigger the trial, like Artie Kendall says, we don't like an issue, but it's true. And we have to think like it, the bigger the compliments. Oh, no, David is willing to go, you know what? God hasn't changed for me. And I'm going to help my soul understand it, but I am not going to run away from this thing or try and tap out. I'm going to bolster my soul the best way I know how, so that in Ephesians 6 verse 13, after everything, I'm going to stand. And what does David do? Well, he does a few great things here. The first is, he reminisces on his encounters with God in verse 3. He says, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. What is David doing here? Now remember, he can't feel God and he can't hear God. And what he's doing is, indirectly, he's helping his soul feel close to God. Now, what do I mean? The best way I can explain it is, have you ever just missed, maybe parents, your kids have gone off to um, another job or city or college, or, and you really miss them. And what do you do if you're old school? You, you take out those photo albums and you begin to, to page through those photo albums. Oh, Nuni man, look at him when he was in his diapers. And look, oh, sweetie pie, look. Oh, I remember that thing, remember that? And you might be doing it with, with a friend or a spouse or on your own. If you're new school like me, I, I go through the phone, have a look at the photos. And, and, and you get a bit teary-eyed. Suddenly, oh, oh, oh. And in a weird biological and neurochemical way, you feel close, and it could be somebody who's passed on to glory. You, 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 but yet it does something for your soul. When you start, oh, you suddenly feel close to them, but it's abstract. It's not real. They're not in the room, but it does something for you. Friends, that's what we need to do for our souls. We need to reminisce about our encounters with God. And I just want to point out to you some of the best encounters David had was in the presence of God with his people. 
We're hoping going to be opening up in October. We're aiming for the 4th of October. Um, and uh, I want to say to you today, the reason why we gather is that's some of the best places where we see God move. And he remembers. And you know, you might journal or you, you use a, a, a photographic memory. You, you, you remind, you reminisce, you allow your soul to reminisce around when there was times where you felt God and heard him. It was times at your best with God. And what it does is it helps your soul feel indirectly close to God. The second thing he does is he reminisces on the goodness of God. In verse 3, he says, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. What is David doing here? You see, although he can't feel the love of God in this moment, David reminds himself that he can see the love of God in his life's battle. That's the thing, is in this moment, he's feeling disconnected from God. He can't feel God's love anywhere. He can't hear God's voice. Oh, but he's not going to let this moment define his sense of love God. He goes, big picture. He zooms out and he goes, oh, I might not see it now, but I can see it in my life. I can see from the moment of my birth to right now how God's love has been steadfast. And I want to say to you today, if you're in trouble and you need some encouragement, drop your prayer plan, your, your Bible reading plan, drop your first coffee for the day, whatever it is. You take half an hour to an hour and you decide to come into the presence of God and you start from the day of your birth, recounting how God has kept your life. And I tell you what, like David, you'll start to go, wow, man, like David, let's take his life for a moment. I was in the field with those sheep and I had no big brother, I had no dad to help me. And those wolves and those bears came to snatch and I had to go hunt them down and God, you kept me. The day when Samuel came to anoint the future king of Israel. Man, my family didn't even want me there. Oh, but you wanted me there. You made me in the lineup and you told Samuel I was your anointed king. Oh, and when I was facing Goliath with a little slingshot and a stone, you beat the giants. Oh, when he thinks about how he was on the run from Saul and how, how God kept him. When David begins to look at his life and assess God's steadfast love, he starts to realize, wow, God has been good to me. And what it does is it gives him an indirect sense of comfort. Now, David can't sense God's voice or he can't sense his presence, but his soul is comforted by seeing the lifespan of God's love for him. The third thing he does is he's determined to take up a posture of praise as a response to this reminiscing. In verse 3 and 4, it says here, <laughs> it says, My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. You see, the right response to David's reminiscing is, I've got to praise this God. Sure, this moment's tough, but look at what he has been like to me. His name, his character throughout my life. And when he starts to reminisce, he makes a decision. He says, you know what? This moment of trouble is not God's defining moment in my life. Some of us, that's our sin. We say, well, this trouble, this is going to define God for me. He never did this. He never kept his way. He never did this. Uh, in other words, what we are saying is, oh, this moment's going to define God for us. David won't do that. He goes, I am going to look upon my lifespan of God's faithfulness and steadfastness. And I'm not going to let this moment define God. I'm going to let my lifespan define God. And when he ties that, he starts to see, I've got a reason to praise. Oh, the joy of the Lord's his strength. And he starts to see, I'm going to lift up my hands in the fullness of God in his character, in his name. I want to say to you today, you must decide what you're going to let God define, how you're going to let, what you're going to let define God in your life. Are you going to let your immediate moment or a lifespan of God's goodness. And friends, you must decide what's going to come out of your mouth. He decides, I will bless you. That's no problem. He's responding to the evidence of the goodness of God. For the rest of my life, God has proven himself to me. I'm going to bless him. Are you? 
What's coming out of your mouth in this time? It will tell you what you're letting your heart define God by. It's by whether or not you can praise him. I mean, he's not conjuring up this fake praise. He's doing it because he's allowed his soul to again be washed by the glory of God's goodness throughout his life. So must you. And it's a posture. He's not just going to sit there and go, Oh, bless you, Lord. God is so good. God is... No, you go, I'm going, to say, I'm going to raise my hands. I'm going to rejoice in the lifespan of God's goodness to me. What else does he do here? The fourth thing that he does is that he remembers that trials don't last forever and that blessing awaits the one on the other side who's faithful to God. This perhaps is the most important in shepherding your soul, my friend, is verse 5 where he says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. What is David saying here? He's saying, this trial is not going to be forever. It has a full stop, praise God. My soul will, on the other side of this, be satisfied with fat and rich food. And fat and rich food, you know, have you, read, have you eaten fat and rich food lately? I mean, your tummy, I can't take it anymore. I'm so full. That's the kind of state David's hoping for. And he knows it's coming. And friends, you have to remind yourself, no matter what trial you're in right now, it's going to end. See, that's how Satan loves to get us despondent, is he loves to paint this as being the experience for the rest of life. It won't be. Whether it is your ascension to heaven through the death this side of the grave, you, you, your death in this life, or even before then, David knows God can sovereignly, and it might do it. He, he could stop this trial. It might be tomorrow. It might be today. You don't know how much longer. It could be around the corner. You have to remind your soul, this is not going to live forever. And that gives your soul a real sense of hope. And what you have to do in your way of thinking around this trial is to say this, I know the finish line is coming, but am I going to run in such a way that I have no regret? That's the mature way of thinking in a trial like this. You see David getting himself ready. He said, this is coming. I know the end. My soul is going to be satisfied. And there's joy on the other side. I'm going to sing for joy with joyful lips. He knows that on the other side, for the faithful believer who holds to God, there is great joy. Ah, but you see, he wants to make sure he runs well. To you today, I want to say the most exciting thing to remember in a time of trial is it's not going to last forever. Joy is going to come for the morning. The number of, the weeping can last for a night. There are certain set hours to a night time, but the sun is going to rise and there's going to be a new day and there's going to be a new dawn. Same is true for you. Oh, and then fifthly, he is careful about what he thinks about in verse 6. He says, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. What is David saying here? You see, he can't sleep at night, and I'm sure you, like myself, know what it's like to be stressed and distressed. And at night, you can't sleep because the, your, your mind is just whirling with thoughts, and they are characterized by the what-ifs and if-onlys. What if I do this? Or what if that happens? Or what if I try this? Or what if that person did? Or if only I'd seen this in David's case. If only I'd seen Absalom, or if only I'd been a better father. Those are the kinds of thoughts that harass you at night. And friends... This is where we have to be so careful. We have to be strict with ourselves. We have to be vigilant. We have to be careful about in which direction our minds run. For David, he won't go down that path. He will turn all his thoughts to God. And I want to say to you today, Gene Miles is brilliant in the second part of our anxiety series. If you have not yet watched our Discipleship Matters topic on anxiety, part one and two, go to our YouTube channel, studyingbaptist.com. 
but it is a Sterling Baptist and it is brilliant. And I'm not going to take up too much time, but she talks about meditating on God. You see, we can choose to remember a lot of other things in a trial. We can choose to remember how we've been wronged. We can choose to remember our current circumstances. We can choose to remember our need. We can choose to remember the court case in our mind of who's right and who's wrong. David won't remember any of that. He won't in himself hold any of that. He wants to focus on God. And my friends, this is the secret to sanity. Because it gives him an indirect sense of peace. You know, it's even possible to get a sense of clarity and perspective outside of the presence of God when you apply the truth in your thinking of who he is. And this gives him a real fresh place of perspective. Can I say to you today when he says, For you have been my help, in verse 7, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. David sees clearly what his true state is. He's saying, in whose hands does my life rest? God's, this God of heaven and earth, who's made everything through the speaking of his voice. He holds my life. God has been my help. And he sees that the wonder of it is he's resting under the covering of this glorious God, under the shelter and shadow of his loving wings. David's life is resting. Though he can't feel God, though he can't hear God, he knows that this is true. He knows it's his reality and it leads to such joy. Such joy. In the shadow of his, he's dancing, he's singing, he's delighting in the knowledge that his life rests in the eternal hands of God. Now the sixth point today is he's determined to cling to God no matter what. Although David sees he's resting under the presence of God, David has a responsibility and he's taking it up through all of these things to shepherd his soul towards God and a confidence stand in him despite the trial. But you see, we have to, no matter what, ultimately come down to this point in our lives that we're determined to cling to God no matter what. In verse 8, he says, my soul. This is the, the outcome of his how he's helped his soul, what he's getting his soul to cling to. There's so many other options that his soul in this moment of distress can cling but he's managed to say now, through all of these things we've spoken about, his soul clings to God. Oh. And he sees that your right hand upholds him. He doesn't feel it, but he knows it. And he's got his soul indirectly, in a sense, to be comforted by it. To be sheltered and secured in it. Now friends, you can choose to cling to a lot of different things in a time of trial. Bitterness towards another person that's hurt you. You want to hold on to that? Your plan for revenge? Your picture of what the outcome must be? You want to cling to your self-pity? Do you want to cling to your self-righteousness? Do you want to cling to your selfish ambition? What are you going to cling to? David sees all those other options are futile deliverers. They cannot do anything except make the soul bitter and distressed and insecure when he sees the option that God himself is the one who's going to hold him as David clings to him. He sees there's no better option. God's the best bet and he's not letting go of God for anything. And when David says, your right hand upholds me, in the ancient times, 
Generally speaking, the person's right hand was their competent hand. If you're right-handed, it's your best hand. He's saying, do you want the best of God in your life? Do you want to see God's hand move on your behalf and look back in your life and say, wow, God is real and God has moved? It is if you are willing to cling to him in the trial and not doubt him, not fall into unbelief, not to fall in bitterness like Asaph was tempted to do last two weeks ago. No, no. If you will cling to God, you will see his right hand, his best at work for you. And so lastly today, I'm going to land this with two big points. We, we Starting out of how David practically shepherded his soul to points four and points five. <clears throat> he sees clearly the end of his enemies, verse 9 and 10. But he says, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword and they shall be the portion for jackals. David can see clearly now. He sees clearly. He says, what is the outcome of these people that have not clung to God? What is the outcome of their faithlessness before the God of heaven? Are they going to win? No, they won't. Are they going to succeed against him, against God's righteousness? Never. He can see with prophetic insight what's going to happen to the man or woman who turns their back on God and goes their sinful way. He sees that it leads to utter destruction. No man will prosper if they deny God. You see, there's no fear of God in these men that are opposing David. Ah, but David says to the one, to the one, my last point today, he sees clearly the end of those who are faithful to God. In verse 11, he says, the one who trusts God, this is what's going to happen. But the king, this is David himself, shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt. Why? For the mouths of liars will be stopped. What is David saying here? Friends, if you will cling to God, the outcome will be rejoicing in this life and the next don't be so foolish to play by the rules of this world. If we want to play by the rules of this world, we want to get our own way back and manipulate situations and deceive and, and distort in order to get our way, it leads to disaster, my friend, because we, if you live like that, you're remembering, you're, you're forgetting that there is a day coming where God is going to put everything right. And he can do it in this life, but he will definitely do it in the next. Is it going to come a day when the mouths of lies are going to be stopped? Don't think you're going to get away with deceiving those around you and deceiving God himself. You think you might have pulled a fast one on the law, on your boss, on your wife, on a friend, and you think you're going to get away with it? Friends, there's going to come a day when every mouth is going to be stopped before the God of heaven and everyone will go, God will put things right and so the warning today is what is your end going to be do you want a glorious end where you can rejoice and exult in being obedient to god and on that day when he puts things right you're on the side of righteousness and god says well done well done you did it you passed the trial and you gave me glory and i'm going to reward you for it publicly now and your enemies thought they got away with it those people that abused you or hurt you thought they got away with it i want to tell you now god will not let the mouths of liars stand he's going to shut them because on that day he's going to put all things right in heaven and earth and so what is the warning today if you're not right with god you need to put it right now if you're not right with your neighbor you need to put it right now because you see, my friend, on that day, we want to be in the camp of God, where we realize that Him vindicates, that Him be the one 
that gives us reward, not the censure for sin. And so, my friends, today, what is your outcome going to be? Let's pray together. Let's pray. Anybody watching? What is your end going to be today? What are you clinging to? Have you clung to Jesus in your life? Is he your only hope? Are you going to cling to your good works, your reputation, your pride? What people will think if you become a Christian? Where are you with God, my friend? Have you ran to Jesus and clung to him like David and said, you're my only hope. I choose you. I confess my sin before you. When you do that today, say, Jesus, I cling to you, your death and resurrection on the cross and your promise of forgiveness of sin. I cling to it, Lord. Would you apply it to my life? I want to live for you. Would you do that today? And for the not yet, for the, for the believer today, Lord, I pray that you would remind us that God, it is so worth standing through the trial. If any man or woman struggling today to sense your voice or your presence and they're in the grip of trouble, Lord, would you steady them with this song? Would you help them see there's glory on the other end for the one who perseveres? But also, Lord, if there's anyone here listening, there's things that are not right in their home, with their colleagues, with the law, whatever it is that you are putting your finger on today, they need to go make right with either with another person or with you. Lord, would you give us faith and courage today? to respond to your word fully and to trust that you are going to put things right now as we do that so that you don't have to put things right then when we stand before you and rather we can receive the well done so lord help us stand we pray we thank you that this word is ministered to us make us stand strong in these days in jesus name